Growing Up Cold, Seeking a Just Energy System. Interview with Anna Stolievska, episode 41. Welcome to the My Energy 2050 podcast, where we speak to the people building a clean energy system by 2050. I'm your host, Michael LaBelle. This week, we speak with Anna Stolievska, an energy poverty researcher who just received her PhD from Central European University, Department of Environmental Sciences and Policy. And full disclosure, before we get going here, I was Anna's PhD supervisor, so I'm a bit biased in some places. Anna's research really goes to the heart of the division in Europe around energy poverty. This is why I wanted to have her on today. Her thesis, Synergies Between Heating and Energy Poverty, The Injustice of Heat, tackles how people attempt and afford to heat their homes in North Macedonia and Austria. Her research shows two widely different approaches to assisting, or not, people to heat their homes. She really underscores the role that state institutions play in setting the price of heat, but also assisting homeowners to pay their bills. As you'll hear from our discussion, the right to heat emerges as a fundamental human right. We first get into Anna's questioning why her family only heated one room when she was growing up in Skopje. This may sound odd to some, but for many families in former communist countries, and probably around the world, this is still a common practice today. She decided to pursue a PhD after she was spurred on by her experience in NGOs and after receiving a master's in European studies. Seven years ago, she applied to CU's PhD program, and as they say, the rest is history. For the past six years, we've been working together, and I have to interject, it has been a great experience for myself and I think for her. And while it may be the case she learned something from her advisor, I have to say I also learned a lot from working with her. She has been a great inspiration for learning new research methods, like phoning up thousands of people in Vienna. And as you'll hear, Anna has a sincere dedication to her research. And for anyone that reads one of her five or six articles she's published so far, there is a great depth to her data collection. The outcome of her research is, I would say, energy poverty is representative of deeper misalignment in state institutions and is the people who bear the social and economic costs of state failures. And before we begin, I want to thank everyone in our growing audience. If you have a suggestion for a topic or a speaker, please just drop us a note on, on our LinkedIn page. We also have our Patreon page up and running for those that want to help fund our efforts to bring this weekly podcast to you. But the most important thing you can do is share this episode or any episode that really strikes something with you. Because the intent of the My Energy 2050 podcast is to spread the knowledge about the energy system develops and how we can assist our transition towards a greener future. And this is our mission. And now for this week's episode. Okay, I'm here today with Dr. Anna Stolyowska. Uh, she's a former PhD student of mine. Uh, maybe that's the first title I say, but we're going to talk today about energy poverty, energy justice, and look and really actually discuss her PhD that she just defended two weeks ago, was it? Yes. Yes. Okay. So two weeks ago, she's done and she successfully defended it and got summa cum laude. Congratulations. Thank you. High highest honors and well-deserved. So first, welcome to my Energy 2050 podcast. Thank you so much, Michael. So my first question to you, Anna, is just, is how did you and why did you get involved in the area of energy? Thank you. Thank you so much. Um, well, I would say that there were like two type of uh, reasons. One was professional, one was bit more personal. Professional was that um, after my master's studies in um, European studies in uh, Hamburg, I came back to Macedonia, my home country, and uh, I really found this interesting job uh, at a think tank, which was looked very good to me. And uh, the job, the open job post was about um, researcher in energy. So this is how I landed. Um, previously, I had some kind of um, studies, but I was really not involved. And this was 2010. And since then, I really started uh, to, to work in energy because that was my job. And from that, because within the area of energy, I had 
the freedom to do whatever research I want. Like I could do energy efficiency, renewable energy, and so on. And because everyone was preoccupied with energy efficiency and renewable energy, I was really looked at that the heat market is quite um, overlooked area. And it's something we're talking uh, about. And through that, I actually uh, saw the link to energy poverty. And that was basically the birth of my thesis. So idea-wise, my thesis was born much uh, before I uh, enrolled at CU. And personal was also, uh, and this is more like showing me my... um, kind of a not upbringing but my how I was in how I since long time ago had interest um, or developed interest as a social scientist so I think it was uh, um, high school and I always wondered why I'm cold cold at home so I grew up in a a large house and my family's middle income, so we're definitely not poor and I had access to higher education. I mean, we had a normal, decent life, dignified life in any case, but uh, we used fuel wood and I often, we were often sitting in a room of 16, 17 degrees, which was quite cold. And I was wondering, so I, was this the question, why uh, are we cold? Uh, like, why do we not prioritize for example, heating up uh, to a to a um, lower. So this, in some way, uh, interest in energy, specifically energy poverty. So it comes from the family. Yes. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And and uh, you grew up in Macedonia and Skopje. Right? Yes. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. So even in a major city, big city, upper middle class family had difficulties heating the home. Yes, definitely. So this is uh, something that I, so I, without even going into the literature, which was much more um, later stage, and uh, I have to mention Stefan Bujarovsky, he did a research on this topic uh, many years ago, and he concluded that middle income, it's uh, energy poverty is a problem of a middle income families. And this is something that I also kind of uh, reconfirmed uh, in my, in my uh, research. And it's not just uh, the middle income. I, I didn't like so much for focused on the income levels. I, I had it, but for me, it was more like this description of material deprivation, which was, uh, was more of um, uh, about the variety of levels in which households are deprived. And this is like, a, there is a list, for example, some interesting were, um, can you afford meat or a um, vegetarian equivalent every second uh, day? something like that or can you afford a holiday once a year so these are like kind of uh, elements of ma- what material deprivation I saw that it, I kind of uh, concluded so I went a bit more above the income level and concluded that energy poverty belongs to this uh, material deprivation phenomenon mm-hmm. and um, maybe, maybe we'll move along a bit and then uh, so you have this family experience of living in uh, essentially what is classified as energy poverty but you also did a lot of work in NGOs uh, in Macedonia before and actually since but um, can you describe what kind of work you did in the NGO sector? Uh, well in the NGO I was basically energy uh, energy researcher so anything that uh, was in the area energy infrastructure and transport I could do research on and we did uh project proposals so it was always this search for the next grant because this is how NGOs are getting funded Um, and uh, preparing policy briefs policy papers which is a bit different than um, academic work it's more focused on the evidence and um, translating the evidence into policy recommendations so something concretely that you would suggest to decision makers and how they can what what they can do in order to improve the policies in a in the area you're focusing on. And luckily I received, and also some of my colleagues, a lot of training. There was a lot of uh, training that we we, uh, received about how to write that. And I think this kind of um, improved my analytical angle on policies and understanding of stakeholders and uh, power relations. 
And other than that, we were also doing a lot of advocacy. So basically when there was uh, some donor making a strategy, we would get invited and then we would, they would maybe focus on energy efficiency. And I would always say, um, what about um, energy poverty? How can we, uh, how there can be a better alignment between environmental, social and energy goals, for example. But um, I also wanted to mention what, um, for me, working in NGO was a very fulfilling job because I always like, and I feel like academia can be socially minded job, and also can, can my be, can, be, <laughs> can be especially can be a fulfilling job sometimes. <laughs> yes, yes, especially with my with a topic, I like to work on a topic that's socially minded. So I I like to work uh, to say or to have people or to have a, a human stories in, in my research. And basically, if I can compare maybe to a consultancy, if in consultancy, some client is your, um, basically you're working for a client, in the NGO, you, the people are your clients. So although they didn't ask you uh, for you to represent them, for example, in uh, I was like, especially the uh, out of the five uh, years, I was there, four years, I was focusing on energy poverty and as if these people affected by energy poverty were my clients. So I was really kind of a trying to bring the, the topic forward and was really, I would say now I, I would be, I am um, really proud of it. And it's not like that I managed to move stones or something, but I think you, you, uh, the, uh, compared to an um, um, academia where you see after five, six years, the results or maybe papers one and one half year, the results of your work here, like you see much faster or the policy brief you take, uh, you need a few months to write and you can like really use use these results to kind of a talk with ministers and stakeholders and try to make some changes, hopefully, for the better. And that ties us into your PhD then, actually. And why did you want to do a PhD? Maybe, maybe I, and I ask you this, of course, because I reviewed your application when you applied to do a PhD, but maybe that was, what, seven years ago. So maybe you could even change it a bit or, or say what you thought at that time and then maybe with a bit of reflection of what, why did you do a PhD? That's a, a quite interesting story. So, um, well, I... Uh, found myself uh, 2015. Um, I was working at my NGO and really loved my job. I just mentioned that, but we had a political crisis. So we had um, a very um, a government who was like uh, pulling us in a really uh, bad direction, and this uh, made uh, this crisis was uh, so bad that even all the donors reshifted their funds from an energy environment into democracy, good governance. Oh, we have to relearn these things obviously again. And it really affected my, my uh, job in a way that there was no funds and one, two applications that I was waiting for to get my salary because this is how we were funded, didn't get uh, funded. And I was thinking, okay, what I can do to, um, basically I wanted funding for a for a research I want to do. So this was like, it was more like a, a financial security for a, a research I really love to do. And actually I heard a lot of good stuff about CU through lots of interns that we had over the years. And they were saying that it's... Um, like I, I obviously, be, uh, other than, because I was not, I did my master's, I didn't intend to do a PhD. I was not familiar with any other universities and I wasn't looking and I didn't know about CU, to be honest. And they said, it's a really great university. It's like, and, and we could see, we had applicants before and after CU and I could really see how uh, they were really good in writing uh, um, policy briefs and they, they were it was a really very good quality of, of, of students. And they, after they finished the internship, they got some good jobs or continued PhD. So the quality was there. And I was intrigued and I was, I was always, um, I was always, um, interested to invest in, uh, in learning. And then I kind of was like, okay, I, I would apply. And what I liked about CU, because at the, at the same time you apply for funding and the position. So it's not that in Germany, not for my masters, I have to do, 
to it was much more complicated and sometimes and it was even was a situation when i had funding and i didn't have a master's position it was a bit chaos and for this i really liked that it was neat and everything and i said when when i was when you said what you wrote i really thought like okay this is me this is what I know. This is what I think it's uh, worth um, researching for. I want to apply. And I really didn't know anyone. I didn't know you. And I said like, okay, I'm just going to put it there and then see if I'm PhD material or not. So that was my intention. Just out of the blue. Okay. I, it was a good application, of course. And, and so we, we took you on. I, and it was a decision by the committee. As I always tell PhD students, so it's never just my my decision, but but as a committee, we we evaluate them. So then I want to move on to your your PhD as well, um, and yeah, you you got it, and you did so much work. So we were just talking about before, but it is available on the CU website or on the library. So and I'll put a link to it so people that are interested. Um, and you actually have some publications that came from it and one other one that I'm just about to, yeah, uh, we have the proofs of our article and everything. So another article, uh, that's come out of your PhD studies. So this is really fantastic. Um, and, um, uh, maybe you can summarize and I, and this is an easy question, I think after so many years, but maybe still a challenge is, could you summarize what your PhD thesis is about? And yeah, and there I think we launch into energy poverty. Mm -hmm. Thank you. So my PhD, uh, I would frame it in the context of the energy transition in which I am uh, exploring the lived experience of energy poor households in, in the whole story. And I um, want to know uh, how energy poverty is related to, to types of heating in a way that... Um, Different, how different types of heating are affected by, um, uh, are related to, to energy poverty. And how energy poverty is related to, to heat is, is because one of the oldest um, definitions of energy poverty was about uh, inadequate heating. And it's also, I, I put it as um, the, the heat market is a place where multiple vulnerability clash because it is a very... Um, inflexible market. It's not like light bulbs or change your um, electricity uh, supplier. It's not very flexible and it's something that's related with a lot of pet dependencies. Like I'm deciding now I'm buying a fuel wood stove and I'm using it for the next 30 years. My kids maybe would be, would be using it in, in that sense, pet dependencies. And it's something that it's energy poverty, something and even heating, it's part of a, even a private uh, sphere right so it's uh, we're talking about people's stories and um we're talking about decisions and we're talking about um, how people live their lives and and use of energy is a really important part of it. So I really went unexpectedly a little bit into this kind of um, anthropological, um, cultural um, uh, exp exploration. So, um, and I'm, I, I also used energy justice as a framework in which I uh, contributed, especially to developing the understanding of what procedural energy justice is and what um, uh, re recognition justice is, especially through the lenses of um, energy poverty. Could you could you explain? Uh, I know I, this is like the tip, uh, this is the easy explanation, but for those that don't know, what is recognition justice, distri distribution justice? And what's the third one? Uh, procedural. Procedural justice. Yeah. Could you explain those a bit? Yeah. So uh, just to say that I'm going to uh, going to okay uh, give a bit more general yeah. and a bit more applied. So energy justice as a framework is you can apply to to anything, right? It's really about as justice means like there is some kind of equality, some kind of a redistribution. Um, that's what what it is some kind of a um, some some kind of a struggle for something better uh, but you can apply it to the production of energy and so on so i will focus only on households basically on energy poverty the distri distributive energy justice one part of the uh, energy justice uh, or one tenant is about the um, more uh, applied to to energies more about the 
I kind of um, frame it about the heating and the uh, infrastructure and about the housing. So if we uh, look at how energy, um, where, where is energy poverty located, what are the housing, heating and infrastructure dependencies that frame this. So it's really about the distributive and the spatial part, hardcore spatial part um, of the problem. Recognition energy justice is about cuisine energy poverty and um, and it's uh, not about only sociodemographical but what do how do these um, people uh, use energy and how, what is their use of energy how this makes them different from the other um, non-energy poor households and procedural it's about basically um, how and this is like my contribution I understood it how uh, institutions, uh, formal institutions um, in uh, relation to, to energy, how they treat how uh, households and, well, citizen or vulnerable citizens in uh, regard to use of energy and how citizens are empowered or disempowered by this relationship. And um, this I uh, done through observing two kind of a dis distinct uh, cases in my studies, which was interesting. I was not going for this, and this is I discovered along the way. I realized that while the um, state-owned utility in Vienna um, really is concerned about people not ab able to pay their bills and goes deeper and looks at their entire personal circumstances and based on that makes... Um, kind of gives them not a free ride, like they have to pay their bills, but uh, starts a communication with them in which they have the opportunity to pay in installments or maybe have some kind of a discounts or maybe get pre -meters. So basically not just to disconnect them simply, but allow them to, to, to know that, look, we care about you and, um, it's you figure things out and uh, then you can pay your bills. Basically, this is what I got the, from the interview. And on the other hand, in Macedonia, um, where I come from, I observed that the utility is quite um, brutal uh, and it's a country where material deprivation is quite widely distributed to like every third citizen is affected by it. And um, you can get disconnected only by not paying one bill. And it could be also because you got your um, bill, your uh, very late in the post, post. It, it can be because of that. And uh, it's uh, quite... Um, uh, and the prices have been uh, increasing and uh, it's something that uh, people went on the streets to protest and to say, look, we want to pay the bills, but we also want to have a dignified life. We want to be able to to pay to pay the bills. So I, I kind of a contrast this. And for me, this came this, um, um, this kind of a contribution to procedural energy justice. So, so you're looking at uh, this institutional perspective as well, the role of institutions in preventing or addressing, maybe addressing energy poverty. Uh, yes, um, with these cases, I mostly looked at um, how institutions, like what are their good governance qualities. For example, in uh, um, uh, Vienna case, they were like cooperated with social institutions and they realized that there is a pattern. So it's not that everyone cannot, because also uh, energy poverty is a very small problem in uh, statistically in, in, uh, in uh, Austria, but they realized there is a pattern between um, who pays, who doesn't pay, and people really uh, don't pay out of, uh, because they, they can't, not because they, they don't want to. And um, um, so it's this good governance quality, how institutions act, but it's also how they especially react in terms of uh, right to, uh, in terms of right to uh, energy access. So basically I kind of, um, made it um, aligned with discussions of right to energy, which is now a quite interesting uh, demand um, in uh, in Europe, demand by NGOs. And it's really about, so if I cannot pay my bills, so if I cannot be a good consumer, do I, um, do I still have human rights? And can I continue to have access to energy? Because access to energy, maybe if, if it's not a human right, allows me access to other human, human uh, rights, like access to housing and so on. So there is a um, 
kind of went a little bit uh, into that and uh, also how institutions uh, are able to absorb the the reaction from uh, from people so there was these um, 13,000 people went on the street protesting they made a draft law in Macedonia they were, yes Macedonia. and they were totally ignored by the parliament just because um, it was um, uh, it was something coming uh, well what the then the the politicians in power said is something coming from the opposition and they 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 made this uh, this uh, law fail fortunately while in barcelona there was a really similar process bit different but similar of um, citizens going out on the streets and uh, fighting for access to energy uh, to electricity gas and water they got the draft law uh, in, uh, accepted in the parliament. So it was quite interesting to observe that. And in Macedonia, it failed then? Yes, it but failed. It, it, so it didn't get accepted uh, because um, they said it's, uh, well, there were quite uh, different arguments, but mostly they're saying that in EU, there is no such thing as social price uh, because uh, people were wanting um, a cheap daily electricity price. And uh, also, if you disconnect from district heating, that you should not pay the basic energy fee. Which if I'm like looking at, maybe they were not the best solutions ever, but it is a voice of a large amount of people who are really affected about not being able to, to pay energy. They're so concerned about it. So you have to offer something. If you like, maybe do not offer cheap daily tariff, then offer something, uh, something else that they will be able still to have a dignified life. So like a evening tariff or night tariff. Uh, there, were, there is evening tariff, but something like, I mean, like energy efficiency programs or something, um, uh, something like that uh, they will be able to use and still continue to to be able to pay their bills and but they have also uh, normal and dignified life. So I have a Hungarian joke for you. Did it fail because George Soros was supporting them? <laughs> well, uh, uh, in that time, yes. Yeah. So basically in that time, it was similar as, as Hungary, I think, uh, at now. So basically everything that comes from the opposition was, now it's a different government. Uh, now that things have changed, actually. There actually, is that prime minister, on. he's living yes, here in Hungary high. now. Oh, and I, and uh, tomorrow his um, uh, residence permit expires. This is what I, <laughs> this is oh, what no. I read. Well, I how did you find that? I, well, I, I just read uh, there's some news and um, oh, it I was hope quite, it's extended. Yeah, so like I'm just wondering how We have two famous doing. Macedonians yes. living in Hungary, the yeah. former prime minister of, <laughs> of Macedonia who fled to Albania <laughs> and then was smuggled through Serbia who knows or something. How, yeah, and, there's a lot of, uh, I mean, this is uh, really sad that um, um, there was like really no satisfactory criminal um, kind of or like a judicial system solution for all these things that were going on. And some people actually did, uh, went in jail, actually, I have to say, some things went into effect with all the um, crimes they did. But uh, I think still the system is quite um, um, not uh, ready for, um, for quality. So I also want to say that it's so sad that people like me, not that I'm any special, but educated people abroad, like there is no space for us in Macedonia, unfortunately, like to work. If uh, I cannot find a job in the public sector because it's quite top down and it's quite depends on, um, you have to be a member of political party to get a job like that. And in the private sector, it's quite um, uh Poverish, maybe if with some civil engineer or something job like that, you will you will work well. But me as a social scientist, I don't think there is a quite, and it's quite sad. And there was census now after we had almost twenty years, and um, one tenth of the population, which is young people, moved out. And they're not coming back. Well, this is a still unofficial um, record. Oh, but it's a lot. I, and it's I know uh, some, quite, I think um, in Poland, this is increasing the amount yeah. of, well, we could say educated people leaving the country. Just from people I know leaving Poland, it's because yeah. of government. It's, it's quite sad because it's, uh, and even things, simple things like, for example, uh, being self-employed or there is no such thing. Uh, or... Um, it's quite like, uh, there's even like a quite, um, there's even no, um, 
soil for uh, development of private sector or like social social scientist research NGOs they're quite good NGOs but you're always donor dependent and um, and um, there is also this is also a different story but um, it's no I'm just saying that it's quite sad because I would gladly not gladly now now it's over but a few years back I would have gladly um, kind of uh, came back and and actually I did after my masters which I was in uh, did my in Germany and I was on so many scholarships and like actually I said in my applications I'm going back to make a contribution to my country and I think I did for five years it was good and I felt it was good and I have to say I still continue to work uh, with with Macedonia even from abroad just that it's quite sad I just like this I want to underline this uh, sadness that it's um, a country with I think lots of potential and there are a lot of smart young people capable people we are just like uh, drowning in one system that uh, won't change and won't give birth to new ideas I guess yeah no I we won't mark on remarking we're sitting in the empty CEU building anyways thank goodness for Victor Orban so we we both the funny thing is we were both in Hungary I'm seeing this uh Shoros book so oh yeah I don't know whose office this is but we're in someone's office yes. with, the, with a full bookshelf and and the George Soros book but mm-hmm. and the rest of you everyone else is in Vienna so mm-hmm. But the funny thing is we're both in Hungary and wanting to stay here. So uh, I have no idea why that is. But anyways, so um, let's go back to energy poverty. But yeah, it's it's unfortunate because the political situation, of course, affects who stays and who who leaves. And um, I'm trying to tie that into into energy and we could go off to like on energy democracy, but we'll, we'll stay with your, your research. And I think actually one of the interesting things I found in the thesis was who was living in energy poverty in Vienna, for example, and maybe you could explain that, what you found there. Yeah, actually that was quite, um, I have to say, I'm if I, uh, met myself then I would have really told myself you really have quite courage to go and explore uh, this uh, energy poverty in Vienna because even according to statistics it was something between 3 and 5% and with my random uh, sample of 150 surveys that I did I was not going to get more than 10 and this is more or less okay around 20 so uh, it was quite basically is looking at something quite um, difficult to find um, and uh, so these uh, there is quite of a profiles and these are more I would say social demographic uh, characteristics it, there, it's a bit related to um, infrastructure but to a lesser extent for example single female pensioners on a minimal pension they are very clear energy poverty uh, group vulnerable group uh, in Vienna and uh, because uh, the minimum pension is below the poverty rate and it's basically by default they are uh, poor and they really had manifested issues with uh, affordability Uh, then also households um, maybe also pensioners who live um, in rural areas and have access to oil and don't have access to gas so they sometimes manage to combine this with um, fuel wood and sometimes it works but uh, still they they kind of feel that they're depend that they're afraid of increase of oil prices because it affects their affordability and it's something that they have to buy uh, oil usually once a year so it's quite like a big purchase that they are kind of going on a um, at least uh, annual basis uh, and it's also um, some profiles like maybe migrants um or maybe have less chances of employment and better integration in the society. And also there was a quite of, and this I didn't manage to talk to uh, people profile like this, but I got this through the expert interview. So there is also lots of people, material deprivation, like on um, uh, almost being ex- expelled from the housing. So quite in a very deep, uh, so there is also like a, this layer of very deep material uh, deprivation. So these are, kind of a, the the most common profile side but, uh, but you had specific groups who you found were living in energy poverty in Vienna which groups 
Um, well, uh, as I mentioned, the, the single female pensioner. So these were also especially uh, female pensioner migrant or migrant background or maybe also of other households of migrant background that they were um, in energy poverty and also those who use um, gas convectors or electricity so basically non-central forms of heating they were also manifesting uh, issues uh, around energy poverty and uh, also definitely those that were um, rural areas and um, dependent on oil okay and um, maybe We'll, we'll take the comparative approach. And, and then in Macedonia, who did you find? And we know we talked about your own personal experience of living in energy poverty. But uh, from your research, what, what did you find there? Uh, so in Macedonia, it's quite different in a way that it's um, less about... It, it is also about the people, but it's more about basically the... Um, housing and heating types they 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 quite are dominant uh, for example households who use a single fuel wood stove so fuel wood and electricity for heating they were very um more um uh uh, have bigger chances to be in energy poverty. And just to say, going back to statistics, so 60% of households use fuel wood and 30% use electricity. So it's uh, quite like a, a big share of them and uh, they were um, mostly affected. Uh, but it's also... Um, lots of the problems of kind of a general material deprivation. Uh, so there was households, uh, especially who didn't have um, a university degree, and it's not the education, it's more the earning opportunities that uh, lack of university education brings, and they were quite affected. So they were like, I think, as a socio-demographic uh, feature were most affected. Also minorities, so Albanians, Roma, Bosniaks, those who are not Macedonians usually uh, were more affected. But also housing-wise, um, if they live in house and uh, they because it's uh, it needs more more heating, uh, they definitely heated uh, one or two rooms. So this was interesting. I remember in my Scopia survey, which was a representative uh, sample, um, I think. Okay, uh, to quote me, but more than half, or no, 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 sorry. One third uh, heated only one room. One third of households in Skopje heated only one room, and uh, no, no matter the size of their um, um, dwelling. So it's quite like um, it's quite limited, and it's mostly that. And what was the difference between, uh, for example, Vienna and Skopje, like on the urban level, is that in Vienna they were mostly a single person household that would they were more dominant. And in Skopje were uh, more people, like um, four or five members in the family. And uh, still, uh, they were also four or five, and sometimes they would use, they would hit only one room. And this means that um, they usually have the stove there, the, where is the kitchen and maybe living room. Uh, and all their activities are there. Sometimes even uh, they would sleep there. So it's like quite a limited, even personal space, life, activity there. Uh, but some of them actually mentioned this is a positive you note. Know, like they um, mentioned that they thought it was a nice family thing. They, they just know like, is this uh, four months of the year that we're going to shut uh, all other rooms? And those who, who, who could or try to, for example, those who have children, they try to have additional heating in the kids' room so that maybe they were like being late on paying the bills, but they would want to give uh, preference to this. So there was a bit of a kind of um, a tense. So yeah, quite interesting stories, but um, uh, a different, uh, different uh, uh, features, different profiles in both countries, but definitely um, similar sense of kind of uh, being worried, preoccupied about paying your energy bills. I, I find it really interesting then that they look at that as, well, I don't want to say good, just a, a way for family connection. You have one room heated and then everyone's in that one room. And despite the circumstances, you're close to your family members 
and it really speaks to something about family ties and the importance of being near each other because normally we think of development as every room is heated in as big of a house as someone can afford and you're as far away from each family member as you can get like this would be the american dream of a big house and of course the whole house is heated right and 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 but the flip side of that is yeah actually if you have a family you want to be close to each other to to a point and this is a way that facilitates that this warmth in a in a room um yes i mean i i think that what i could um well um maybe terrorize like discuss or think about i think it was great for kids like they spend a lot of time with uh, the, the the family and i remember when i was a kid and it was like a long time ago when there was uh, after fall of yugoslavia when there were um, electricity restrictions and we would have no electricity and like it was so exciting as a kid like oh, candles you're on christmas and it's just like i think when you, your parents are here your family's here you don't see these things uh however i think that uh maybe well this is out of my uh, scope of expertise but i think uh, there uh, there is this um um tendency of uh, multiple families still living together and i don't think <laughs> many actually like it in macedonia like um several generations and teenagers having no privacy maybe that's not uh, so good but uh, yeah i think as as uh, kids uh, i think they they probably enjoy it No, but this is interesting because okay, now we're really getting off topic. But but um it, it gets into I'm looking now at the capabilities approach with the Marcha Sen and um uh, Martha uh Nussbaum. And there it's 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 the capability, right? So you can choose uh it's the choice that you make of whether you want to live in deprivation or you can choose not to so in a sense you can choose to heat one room but actually you should have a choice to do that and if you're not choosing to eat if you're not um how do i explain if you're not choosing to only heat one room because that's what you like i mean that's what you're forced to do is only heat one room but actually if you have the means you could eat the whole house you just choose not to and i think this is a kind of a dividing line of you could heat the whole house or or every room of an apartment but you choose not to and so everyone's kind of crammed into one room in the winter time but you've got teenagers now and so now you really need to heat the whole house <laughs> something like this I mean I think it's it's quite interesting but I think it's uh so I'm not familiar so much with the capability approach but I think it's um I think it could be that families can afford or like uh, not maybe hit two rooms. However, I think they do this out of general insecurity like to maybe today you have a job tomorrow you don't have a job uh, energy prices would increase i think they're quite um focused on saving focus on uh, maybe like they have uh, it's and it's also not just um daily uh, cost they have there is also things like maybe lots of have loans in banks and so it's it's or or uh, they are saving for a house or they're maybe building a house I mean there is um I think conscious um minimization of daily costs in order to be able to afford something uh in uh, in um, in the long term. I just a personal example it's like it's just what I observed. I like my family I'm going to mention again middle income like nothing uh, nothing really too rich, but they needed I think like 10 years of saving just to buy a um car or discounted car or something like that. So it wasn't like it's for two years, but then if it's two years it's like half the price. So it's just you imagine like what kind of intensity of savings do you need and to 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 go. And uh, also things like when uh, kids go to university, uh, so uh, in Macedonia it's usually the case that it's not very expensive, but especially if they're not from Skopje, they have to come to the capital city and have costs, living costs. And I think that's a bit of a problem or a problem or it's like a burden for families, but they still do this in order because they know access to education for their children would bring them better earnings. So I think it's 
it's quite this this choice is like you have a choice now but i think they thinking in a very long term time perspective just because of all this insecurities and all even um things like now at the moment everyone talks that electricity price would go up would go up and um and is uh, everyone is worried and it, they're preparing now and they're even seeing that okay maybe the price is up but everything else is uh, is inflation everything prices are up and they're kind of uh, preparing uh so i think it's um it's the this kind of a, how much choice you have it's quite gets a different context if you've seen it seen it in a longer time perspective mm-hmm. but it's also also the point that just the income is much lower than in western europe i mean just even income wise so your percentage of your income goes m- more towards energy a higher percentage goes towards energy rather than someone living in france or the uk or germany Yes, uh, that's right. And uh, well, I think according to statistics, 14% on average of the income goes to energy costs. But I think that um, it's much more for people in energy poverty. And I will, I had also people, I mean, that, that I interviewed that tell me like one third or one fourth of the all, all household income goes to costs, energy costs, maybe in winter time. So it's, it's not something that uh, like they take likely and there is also quite a bit of a like a stress like it's um it's a, like this anticipation of what my oh i cannot open the bill what my bill would be and then how much i would need to uh, go and uh, pay for for it it's quite it's even quite like this is what i tried to look at it's quite a psychological it's quite like um um exhausting emotional um, process to go through when you are like have limited um, limited opportunities and unlike for example western europe not just that um, uh, income is much lower macedonia the problem is there is like no one there to help you like in uh, we're now writing a paper with colleagues and reviewing like welfare policies wow like you came france they have like such i learned so much from from the colleagues they have like such a tradition of welfare policies this that uh, this allowance that allowance and um we had of course cheap price it's still kind of um considered cheap but there was no anything anything uh, directed towards any other needs rather than um there is only one small energy poverty subsidy which is about 16 euro per month which is not really much and it's actually you get it as a reimbursement so first you have to pay and then you get it the reimbursement and if there is delay it can be a problem for your budget so there is like really no uh, developed welfare policies or something else to kind of uh, taking care of for different vulnerable groups okay i just want to i want to move on and it just speaks to the heart of I would, we don't need to go there, but, but it actually goes to my next question from your introduction of your thesis, but the, how the EU policy is addressing or tries to address, um, I would say ener- energy poverty in all EU countries and the big division between the East and the West. And now I'm starting to phrase it as simple as that in the East and the West, because uh, all the statistics that we're looking at are definitely just highlighting this this huge disparity between income and percentage of income going to for energy needs compared to people in, uh, I would say, the older member states um but i want to i want to move us on and and bring us to an end but but in your introduction you write you have this great line and i'm going to quote it here you write the energy transition needs to be a human focused inclusive and empowering socially just energy transformation which brings closer the visionary concept of energy justice to citizens and my question to you, is this too ambitious? <laughs> yes, of course it is. I mean, of course it is. It's very ambitious. But I am just, um, I think what I want to say is that it's 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 ambitious, but not very complicated in a way that if you see the process rather than the outcome. So let's not just focus on, okay, I know that EU, everyone, low carbon, 2050, right? We are going that way, fine. But let's just think how we're going to get there. And I don't think it's, uh, it's there is a need of a huge effort to, to do this. For example, um, uh, let's just uh, align 
these energy efficiency goals with material deprivation indicators. I mean, it's not a, a really big deal. Or, for example, what was the case that um, when you give subsidy for replacing, um, there was in Macedonia, Skopje, uh, fuel wood stoves with pellet stove, which I think is a good idea, Include low-income criteria, include uh, minorities, include different variables, and then you target this policy to the right people. So I think it's not too much. Or or just ask, for example, see like, okay, these people went on a protest. Okay, they didn't want to stand there and lose their time every day or several times a week. They they have other things to do. But they went there just to, to, to see. And you can see that even whatever they wanted, their voice was not heard. So if they're smart enough, they would say, look, these people, there was a problem. Okay, maybe we cannot give them cheap electricity, but we can give maybe some else and let's direct let's take this input from citizen and direct it in our policies and what in, in Macedonia they love to do and actually I saw that in Austria there is a bit more um, consideration you cannot just copy paste things from EU like let's do goals you have to t- think how you're going to get there and how you're going to make sure that everyone uh, profits uh, or, or is taken there and it's because one, one example uh, there was the uh, feed in tariff which is now all all dated model for increase of renewables. And what does this feed-in tariff mean? It means it's a subsidy which is paid by all consumers, uh, even those vulnerable, everyone that pays electricity bills pays for the uh, renewable subsidy. And who gets the benefit of the subsidy? These few companies that basically produce renewables. So we have... Quite injustice, not uh, well distributed policy. So we, so we achieve, we check check the renewable energy. We increase by I don't know how many percent the renewable energy uh, percentage, which is like one goal we want to achieve, right? But we do that by increasing the electricity price for everyone, including for the vulnerable and just few companies that get the subsidy benefit. Well, I don't see a quite justice. It's it is a clean transition, but it's not just. So I really love this socially just and human based uh, because uh, although they it's too ambitious they mean they mean and through this kind of uh, interdisciplinary research and bringing social science more into all these technological stories for energy transition i think uh, there can be uh, a lot of uh, with with not so much effort we can have a really inclusive transition and and Yes. Yes, Anna. Yes. <laughs> I'm not going to argue. I'm not going to argue with that. And I'm, uh, I just want to support. But I like what you said. The last point there is the social sciences. And actually, this brings us transitions to the last questions here. But the what what role do the social sciences have in looking at this energy transition and within energy poverty? Well, that's a great question. So what um, I can kind of maybe mostly say is this energy justice, energy poverty. Uh, I'm sure there are other um, areas that social sciences do and that I'm probably not aware of. But it's really about kind of in, in a nutshell bringing what where where are the people in the in the entire story right we are not just the one energy system yeah energy system is dependent of, of the people so it's like similar like even power relations if we say like politicians there but people vote politicians right uh, or there, then there are some rules who make everything complicated I think it's the same thing as the as also about the the, the social sciences trying to kind of a make sure that there are no negative uh, social outcomes of the whole process or that we have everyone on board and um, and this socially I, I've heard that this socially just energy transition is or just is translated as let, let's make sure that people in the code sector don't lose their jobs or that they are educated and now get um, jobs in the renewable energy sector and so on. But it's not only about that. It's it's also about uh, the consumers, right? Or the um, citizens. Uh, we we try to uh, give our contribution to the energy citizenship uh, proposal, right? In which we really try to show this uh, color 
colorful stories of a variety of stories of people. So there are people in village of, if I pronounce it well, Ag, Ag in, in the south of Hungary, or there is like a very good example of uh, in the Nordic country where I don't know, maybe some things function much differently, but there at, at, at the end of the end of the line, they're, they're, they're citizens. And we, um, energy system is made of citizens. So we cannot just think about the security of the energy system or have some kind of uh, electric cars or everything because it's it's really about um, who will use them. And let's not make a divide. Let's not make another divide. Because what we, and I think also I love this sentence in my thesis, that Today, we make the pen dependencies for energy poor people of tomorrow, the decisions we make today. So if we say that, I don't know, there is something, a preference for electric cars, people who don't have, they would be, or, or they have not changed to electric cars, they would have, um, for example, one pen, pen dependency from the past, which the, they, uh, it would maybe um, be uh, not beneficial for them in the future. I love that. I love that. Maybe I missed that line. That that should be a, your next research area is path <laughs> dependency of energy poverty. Uh, I think, in fact, what, what you just said, a couple comments for this answer and the previous one as well is what I like about your approach and what I think it demonstrates that you finished your PhD is that you've actually turned the tables on things. So you're not looking at, often people look at the production of energy and that's where the incentives are on solar feed in tariffs or whatever, right? But but you've reversed this on its head and said, hey, if we're giving uh, subsidies to those producing power, power producers, we actually have to have subsidies to help the most needy afford that energy as well on the, on the demand side. So. Exactly, exactly. And the demand side is quite uh, complicated, much more complicated than the supply side. And it's quite um, neglected. And it's quite also like depends on the sectors, transport industry, maybe you can regulate some. Although also transport sector is composed of consumers, people driving cars or, or uh, part of it is also personal and households definitely is some like the more, more diverse group of um, entities. But um, um, it's, it, it, it is, it should not be neglected. And I, I think that this was something that I kind of really wanted to, 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 uh, bring it up because it's, um, even since I, 10 years now, look at the energy transition, it was all renewables, uh, renewables, well, energy efficiency, but mostly on households and they're really nice keywords and we should definitely strive for them, but it's more like how we, how we do that. And I think that's quite relevant. It's excellent. Um, I hope I didn't have too much influence on your <laughs> thinking, although I have to say that you, you were the research assistant on my book, so you had to read everything. And, and for those that want someone to do the index, well, yeah. uh, they can hire Anna to do the index. Cause I got compliments on yeah. my index, which, which yeah. you did and not me. So, okay. The, the last question, cause we're definitely out of, out of, Oh, um, time. The last question is what kind of energy system would you like to see in 2050? Well, um, well, definitely we're going for the low carbon option, right? So I think this is something that we're going to, whether actually it will be, uh, realized. I, I don't, I'm, I don't think anyone knows really, even those that all the, um, scenarios that you can make. I don't think that anyone can like fully predict what we'll have because every time I'm like, I'm quite deep in my energy poverty research. And if I like, oh, okay, let's just read something what's out there. And there's always a new things that come along and I also cannot keep track. So I believe that there is a, like a degree of, um, uncertainty, but what I would like to see is that I, what I said, I would like to see more energy justice, uh, as I kind of saw, uh, as, as I mentioned, so basically to uh, um, to empower citizens to take more active role. And I can mention one example that I'm, I kind of learned uh, a few years ago in a um, summer school. There's something like uh, energy cooperatives, which can
can be owned by citizen and so basically they get the profit and they have like um, kind of their shareholders and uh, it can be totally about renewable and energy efficiency projects and this is like quite like something uh, in the Netherlands that was quite profitable and people were quite interesting and it's a way how they actually shape their community which I think is quite interesting okay Great. Uh, I love it. And it's also a research agenda, I think, for the future is, uh, energy communities and yeah, the path forward. So, okay, with that, Anna, thank you so much for setting aside the time today. And thank you for the tremendous six years of working together with you. I'm, I have to just say, actually, I, I want to be the one saying thank you for, for everything and working so hard and helping me and actually supporting me with all my research efforts on these proposals we did in the past. So actually, it's just me thanking you for being such an excellent student. And now now you're yeah, you have PhD and you're going to excel. So thank you very much. Thank you so much, Michael, for inviting me and uh, also for all the support of the years. I mean, it's been long and uh, I think that what I mostly appreciate is that you were there when I needed you, but also you left me alone when I needed <laughs> because I kind of wanted to try out different things and you had trust. So you had trust in me that I will, I have things under control. And I think this is so crucial. And you always supported me everywhere I wanted to go, any application, anywhere. And we're a good team, which I'm sure it will continue with your next students. And I'm always here in Hungary if there is any, anything that we can, uh, work further and uh, thank you thank you so much again for inviting me for your podcast thank you for joining us for this episode we produce the my energy 2050 podcast to learn about cutting edge research and the people building our clean energy system if you enjoyed this episode or any episode please share it the more we spread our message of the ease of an energy transition the faster we can make it you can follow us on linkedin where we are the most active on the My Energy 2050 webpage or on Twitter and Facebook. I'm your host, Michael LaBelle. Thank you for listening to this week's episode. <laughs>